Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today, February the 22nd, 2024, this is episode 3452 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, so it is time for an expert council QA show. I got a great lineup for you today, including hearing from another new expert to the council. I think we've added three. And if you go to the Expert Council page, their bios and headshots and all are not up yet. But if you go there right now, you will notice that the headcount has been drastically reduced. Cuts have been made. Piking trees have been shooken until I am tired of shaking them. And if you happen to be on the Expert Council and you go by there and look and you're not there anymore, you got cut. I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, and anybody that was... When you want to start making content on a regular basis again, you shall be welcome back with open arms, and I thank you for your past service. And I don't mean to take a dig at anybody there. It's just a reality that I have to put a show together a week like this, and I need a good six segments minimum to be able to do that. And I need active participant members of the Expert Council that turn around questions in a day or three. Hey, and you know what? If you are an expert and you feel that our expert panel is missing someone that fills that niche including looking at the list and seeing who may not be there, you can send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, with TSPC in the subject line. And if you do that, and tell me a little bit about yourself and what you can cover and the types of questions you can ask, answer, I will probably send you a sample question and ask you to audition. I may also tell you we have that really covered. I had somebody recently, was a, a doctor, and uh, I said, what can you add that we don't already have with Ken Berry and Doc Bones? And he basically said, I, I, I have a different approach, but I would probably answer your questions the same way. So I would have loved to have that guy, but, you know, we've got that base covered. So if we real like, we probably don't need another permaculture person. We have Ben Falk. We have Jeff Lawton. We have Nick Ferguson. And I just realized something. I don't think Nick Ferguson is on the dadgone page. I'm going to have to check that again because I made cuts today, and I, now I'm like, I don't... I don't remember seeing Nick. Nick, you're not going anywhere, bro. If you went and checked the page, I don't think you were ever there. Nick, I need a headshot and a bio for you to get you up there. If I'm wrong, then don't worry about it. Anybody else, like, just go ahead and, s and submit that. Basically, I know flat out two of the people who have applied are 100% going to be invited permanent part-time. And there's a third one that probably will as well. So we are going to keep, you know, I want to say upgrading the expert council, but maybe rotating people through because it is a service type thing, and if you have a business or something, it can be very beneficial to you. If you're just a person with knowledge who wants to share it, you know, a year or so of doing that, you might be like, I, I did my part, and I want to tap out. So that's okay, too. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, the Ron Paul Liberty highlights today. We're going to hear how globalists create division and disaster on a global scale from Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini. Tim, the two-old man cook, is going to give us an update on his property that he purchased in Tennessee and talk about finding and choosing a property for a major move. And getting a property in the central United States when you live in the Arctic region of Canada, you know, that's probably a major move. So you might know a little bit about it. Dr. Bones, who absolutely never pikes. I mean, this guy turns around questions so fast, I forgot I asked him. Uh, he wants to talk today about treating and preventing frostbite. This is incredibly important. I mean, you're talking disfiguring, life-altering, and life-threatening 
problems when it comes to frostbite. So we're going to talk about that. Sean Mills will talk about ex- expanding an existing solar power system and going with uh, panels that are different wattage than the ones that you already have and what that requires and how you would approach that. I think that's going to be really important because a lot of people have started kind of small and the price of panels keeps coming down and you keep getting more and more for your money, but I don't want those 1,000-watt panels that I already paid for to go away. But what what, what do I do when I got those 100-watt panels and all of a sudden I can buy 300-watt or 500-watt panels for about what I paid for those 100-watters a few years ago? How do I do that? Sean will tell us. Eric Hammond who will be getting his formal invitation to the expert council after knocking the first question out of the park for me. And he's going to handle things that are like mechanically oriented things. I had a question about a good UTV to work with on the homestead and specifically asking me if I had a preferred brand. This is out of my wheelhouse. I have never owned, I've driven some and all, but I have never owned a UTV. And it just so happened that this question... And Eric's application to join us came like within hours of each other, and I am a believer in synchronicity. So I said, why don't we just see if it's really true? So I said, here, what do you want to do with this one? Well, he gave me an answer. It was too long. It was my fault. I didn't give him a briefing on how long they were supposed to be, so I kicked it back. He redid it. It's even better, and it meets the time requirement. So you'll hear from Eric Hammond today, first time up on the Expert Council. Then we'll hear about using wood ash for fertility and pH adjustment and dealing with invasive knotweed from Ben Falk. And then I have a segment for you today that ended up, I wanted it to be 10 minutes, but it ended up being 20. Yeah, I get to break the rules on the Expert Council Show. It's my show. If you produce a podcast, you can have as much time as you want. And, um, you know, I was, I'm doing all this research for the cover crop course, which is the next one to come out. I think the free principle-based design course at Home Food Systems, we should have that out probably next week sometime. I know I've gotten all my part of it done and sent over to Tom so we can get it running. Uh, so that'll let you take a free course there. But I'm, the next paid course at HomeFoodSystems.com is about cover cropping. And as I've been doing this, I've realized something. I actually agree with a lot of the people in the global warming world. Much like I agree with vegans. So you know me, I'm not going to become a vegan, and I don't think it's a healthy diet. And the motivations that a lot of people in that space have from a nutritional standpoint I think are wrong, right? Hugely wrong. But when they make objections to like how we treat cows and CAFOs and pigs and CAFOs and things like that, and chickens standing in their own manure until they die, yeah, I agree with them. And so I have a solution for that. We've talked about it. But what I, I don't think I've ever talked about is what is the solution to the fact that I agree with global warming people? I just don't think it's the real cause of global warming. There is too much CO2 in the atmosphere. I think we need to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. We need to put it into the natural carbon sink that the Earth provides for us where it belongs so that we can fix things like the carbon cycle and the water cycle and the ecological biological cycles within well, the earth itself. Didn't want to give you a certain word for it and give away part of the presentation when we get to it there, but that's what I'm going to talk about for my anchor segment today. And I did already record it in a video. I'll drop the audio in here, but if you want to share that 20-minute segment with the people in your life who keep telling you about global warming and say, hey, if you want a solution, here it is. 
you'll be able to do that without sharing the entire podcast. With that in mind, let's go ahead, let's drop on into it, hear from Ron Paul and Chris Rossini on how globalists create division and disaster on a global scale. Taking a broader view on a big lesson that all of us are going to have to learn at some point, and that's that power must be kept locally. Uh, the reason being because you know who you're dealing with locally. There's recourse locally when people get out of hand. Uh, the further you get away, the less recourse you have. I mean, do you feel like you have any control over what happens in Washington, D.C.? I know I don't. Or the Federal Reserve? Absolutely not. They don't really care what I think, and, and that's it. And that also puts in their minds, hey, there's no recourse. We can do whatever we want. And they have that attitude. And the further you get away now, let's go on the global scale. There's these goofy globalists that want world government. And look what happened with the World Health Organization during COVID. It was all nonsense and lies on a global scale because there is no recourse. What do you, if there's a world government in Brussels, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. So that's why they want world government. They want no recourse from anybody. But when you're talking about local, you may know your mayor. I know my mayor goes to my gym, you know. He has to, he's, um, he's responsible and the people are right there, you know. So that's, that's what you need. And the reason we also need that is because men are not angels. We are susceptible to greed, to envy, to all the bad sins, to use religious terms. So you can't have unlimited power. You need to be kept in check. So we need to we need a big lesson in going from all these global federal reserves, all this nonsense, back down to real local government. Very good. You know, uh, going back uh, to the local government, I think is a, a great idea because that's where it was supposed to be originally, uh, to a large degree, and I still think that's worth talking about. So if you go all the way back, we have world government, we have the globalists, we have the, the UN and NATO and all these things well in place uh, and doing a lousy job, but they still mm -hmm. exist. And they, uh, they, they keep doing the same thing over, over the time. But then you go down and then you have national government, and our founders worked very hard to keep that very small uh, in, in a special type of government, and that's been lost uh, now. It's a, it's a universal central government that runs about everything, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the intervention still, still comes. So if you go down, down to the state level, then you go to the community level, and you say, oh, that's anarchy. You know, we don't want anarchy, but you know what? Guess what? Uh, if if all your decisions and responsibilities are laid upon you and your efforts, that that is a lot of government. If you believe in that, you you have to be responsible for everything you do, and that's what people don't understand and they don't want to, because they still believe that the world would fall apart if you didn't have socialist, fascist type of economies where the government would pass out the goods and make it all fair and equal. It's failing now, and it's going to continue to fail. That's why I advise people a good way to start it if you want to go back in the other direction. Take a look at the Constitution. The Constitution is pretty good on this, on what kind of government we're supposed to have. So that's what is available to us, and uh, there's no reason why we can't do it. 
and we're going to have a bigger chance because the system we have is failing, and then we ought to be ready to get the message out. You see, people will say, well, it's such a mess. What can we do? Well, it's such a mess. It's going to get worse. Maybe you could slow it down, and maybe there will be a chance to change it. You have to change people's minds. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a matter of changing people's minds that makes a difference, and that's where I'm an optimist. I do believe that if people are fully informed, they will finally realize that freedom is so much better than authoritarianism. Okay, moving on from there, let's hear from Tim Cook about the property that he has purchased in Tennessee, including why he purchased a property in Tennessee, why that part of Tennessee, some plans he has for it, and even more. Tim, we haven't heard from you for a while, so take it away. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to tackle another expert counsel segment, so let's dive right in. This one says, hey, Jack, I got a question for Tim for the council segments. Can you give a summary of the new piece of land in Tennessee? Details. How you located your plot? Why you chose that specific piece? Any issues during purchase and future plans with it? I know he's doing YouTube videos, which you're correct on that, but haven't had time to get to them. Thanks, Eric. So, yes, uh, shameless plug, but if you're interested, we got the Delinquents Gully Chronicles. I'll talk about that a little bit more. We've been doing, I think we've got eight episodes now that show it. But I will give you the Cliff's Notes version of what's going on with us there. So first off, we went through a company called Land is Great. Uh, a fellow TSP workshop community member had gone through them and recommended them to us. When we came back from SRF in 2022, we knew that we wanted land down there. We wanted to be around our people and we'd love to spend a little bit more time there. So we started doing some digging, and like I said, the community member mentioned it to us, and we followed through. The website had pretty good photos. They had a plot plan. We used Google Satellite uh, photos, and then a friend of ours, Don, went down and took a bunch of videos for us. So that gave us a bit of a, a good look. I would still recommend going um, you know, in person to look at any property you're going to buy. But for us, you know, Christmas 2022 from Canada... We did the absolute best we could and did our due diligence, and we were lucky to have some community and some friends who were able to check it out for us. So when we first started looking, they originally had some land on uh, Birdsong Road, which is where TAC Response uh, gun range is. That was a little closer to Camden, and we were thinking we'd like to get there, but they didn't have any. So where we ended up with was about, um, it's about 40 minutes south of Camden, which is where SOE is. Um, the land itself, tell you a little bit about that, uh, has been had been selectively cut a decade or two ago, uh, but there's still more than enough trees there. We did the best we could when we were looking for properties. They had quite a few raw plots in this one section. They kind of run in a U around this laneway, I guess you would call it, and we eventually settled on, Becky and I went back and forth, and we settled on two in the very back corner, so we bought two five plus acre plots that are as far off the beaten trail as we could get. And a few months later, we got offered the third five acre section for a deal we couldn't refuse. And so now we have a total of just over 16 acres of basically raw Tennessee land. All right. So here's the thing. <laughs> the most important point for us when buying land that is a three day drive away from home 
is having good community. So Dawn, she was nearby and she offered to go do some video. She's also offered multiple times to help us out when needed. Uh, Brian and Corey from the Lots Project, uh, they've been staying nearby for the last year or so. And he goes by and does some work on our properties. Uh, we made friends with the neighbors. That's helped quite a bit. Jamie, otherwise known as Off-Grid Ping, if you've seen him, he's up the road. He's become a great f- friend and he checks on the property for us as well. Now, as far as the property goes, it's on a bit of a hillside and it has a very small spring flowing through it. I think it would run, I think it runs a little heavier in the winter time, but uh, Brian, Carrie Brown and I and Corey and my wife, we all walked it last spring for the very first time. We marked out some trail lines, some potential cabin sites, and then we started planning, which was kind of cool. So the Thursday before Self-Reliance Festival, this, well, now in 2023, we had a workshop work day where we had 18 people show up. Before that, Brian and I, and uh, we had some help from Sean Mills, we built a composting toilet so that we'd have one when everybody showed up. And then on the work day, we built an 8 by 8 cabin with a deck on the front of it. We built a bridge. We cut a ton of pathways. And we widened the driveway and a bunch more all in that one day. It's incredible what you can do when a bunch of folks show up. So now we have a main bunkhouse site with the cabin. I'm heading down there uh, in just about a month from when I record this to basically quadruple the size of the cabin to build an outdoor shower house and a composting toilet up on the main property. Eventually, uh, while we have multiple campsites cleared at the moment, we're going to build probably four more cabins on some of those sites, and then we'll have some just kind of raw camping sites as well. And kind of the idea is eventually to do some hip camp stuff that Brian wants to facilitate so that we can rent some of the property out, so we can run some events, so we can make some income from it. I had Carrie Brown do a uh, walk and an assessment of it uh, last year. And starting next year, we're going to kind of pursue the food forest end of things a little bit. And uh, Carrie is really good at that kind of stuff. And then, again, the power of community. This fall, another neighbor who I met through Jamie gave me a great deal on excavating work. He was renting an excavator, a mini excavator, and he said, hey, uh, basically I will give it to you at uh, half of the going rate. Would you like me to do some work on your property? And we said, yes, we would love that. And so before, if we wanted to get off the road and into my property, I had to put it in a four-wheel drive and just kind of limp it through a ditch. Now we have a beautiful wide driveway, brought in a load of chert for us, and now we can actually drive in there. You could go in there with a compact car and it wouldn't be a problem at all. And as far as what's coming up, I mean, uh, like I said, I'm heading down there in March. I'm going to build some more. We're going to see, we'd love to run some events down there. I know Brian wants to keep his uh, comfrey process going wants to do some biochar pro, uh, projects down there as well and uh, we'll see as time permits and then uh, people ask well where did the name delinquents gully come from well the very first day we were there carrie mentioned you know that's quite a nice little gully there at the bottom of the the property and brian and i both looked at each other and we said that's it it's a gully <laughs> and for those who don't know if you're part of the workshop community you're called a delinquent because you don't really fit inside the system. So, 
Hence the moniker, Delinquent's Gully. So I hope that's a bit of the insight into it. I can only get so much in this segment. But if, like I said, if you want to see a little bit more of it, you want to get a walkthrough of the project, you want to see the work day we did, I got an eight-part series called Delinquent's Gully Chronicles over on my YouTube channel called Toolman Tim's Workshop. So check that out. And guys, keep these questions coming. I love answering them for you. Send them to Jack, and I'll get them answered and sent back to you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, great stuff from Tim, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more and more about this. There is an entire nexus of TSP-type folks being built in and around the Camden, Tennessee area, also one being built up in the cold sauce land that is out on the other side of the state, and there's some other things. But Tennessee is one of the true hotbeds of survival podcast community activity, and it's definitely worth checking out. Next up, let's hear about Frostbite from Doc Bones, who doesn't have to worry about this, by the way. He lives near Miami, Florida. There ain't going to be no Frostbite down there, but you might have that problem. So Bones was good enough to share his expertise on this very important subject, especially in February. Let's hear from Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the book, Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. In a recent video, I discussed what happens when your body is exposed to extreme cold, a condition known as hypothermia. Left untreated, general hypothermia leads to failure of various organ systems and even death. Besides general hypothermia, however, there are other cold-related injuries, such as frostbite and immersion foot. What causes frostbite? The body responds to cold temperatures by narrowing the blood vessels, something called vasoconstriction. Blood flow to the extremities decreases to preserve flow to the vital internal organs. And as the blood is redirected away, these parts of the body get colder and ice crystals can form and destroy tissue. Frostbite usually occurs in the extremities, but sometimes affects areas like the ears and the nose. It occurs in stages that cause more and more damage as time goes on. The first stage is frostnip. In frostnip, the skin turns red and cold, and the victim experiences pain, numbness, and a pins and needles sensation. Then there's superficial frostbite, or second stage frostbite. This causes the skin to lose color, going from red to white to maybe even blue. At this point, tissues are freezing and swelling may be noted. The texture of the skin changes also, becoming stiff and waxy. Although frozen, the victim may feel the sensation of heat. Actually feels hot in the affected area. Now what if it's even worse? In deep frostbite, also known as third degree frostbite, both superficial and deep tissues are affected. The skin appears blue and splotchy and circulation is blocked by clotting blood. Even after rewarming, many will develop dark blood-filled blisters within the first 24 to 48 hours. Loss of sensation, malfunction of nearby muscles, these are common consequences. Although rewarming is appropriate, it may not succeed. Blue skin may turn black, a condition known as gangrene. Gangrene is the death of tissue resulting from loss of circulation. Once this happens, amputation may be required to remove non-viable parts before infection sets in. Now, a related condition to frostbite is immersion foot, formerly known as trench foot. This condition was seen commonly in soldiers who spent long periods of time in cold and waterlogged trenches during World War I. Immersion foot doesn't freeze tissue solid, but causes damage to nerves and small blood vessels due to prolonged time in water 60 degrees or lower in temperature. Immersion is a non-freezing injury that appears like frostbite, but may have a swollen, wet appearance compared to it. 
Rewarming a frostbite injury can be painful. Matter of fact, it can be very, very painful, but it should begin as soon as possible in survival settings to avoid further trauma and improve the chances for full recovery. Most use warm water soaks no more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius on the extremity for 30 minutes or maybe until the skin returns to a more of a red color. The water can't be so hot that it's uncomfortable when you place your own hand in it. It should remain warm, however, so replace cooling water as needed. Note that the practice of using warm soaks to treat frostbite is different from that of general hypothermia, which is best treated with warm dry compresses to the groin, neck, and armpits. In superficial frostbite, clear blisters may form in the damaged area as the patient recovers. In deep frostbite, they'll likely be filled with blood. The skin is going to appear bruised, blue, or otherwise discolored. Expect these areas to turn into thick, dark scabs. Now, some of this tissue may be non-viable and have to be removed. This process is called debridement, and that's something we'll talk about in future installments. Patients often complain of burning or stinging, which can be treated with ibuprofen at standard dosages up to, let's say, 600 to 800 milligrams, three to four times daily. Now, this may or may not help the pain much, but will decrease the constriction of blood vessels and decrease further tissue damage. If you can help it, don't use the frozen extremity for walking, climbing, or any other activities during that time. Although many victims recover completely from superficial frostbite, others have permanent issues with pain or numbness in the affected area. Infection is a possibility and may require antibiotics. Of course, with deep frostbite, there are definitely long-term issues. Here are some other treatment tips. Don't allow thawed tissue to freeze again. The more often tissue freezes, thaws, and refreezes, the deeper the damage. If you can't prevent your patient from being exposed to freezing temperatures again, you should wait before rewarming, but not more than, let's say, 24 hours. Don't rub or massage frostbitten areas. Doing so is going to cause worse damage to already injured tissue. For the same reason, prevent the victim from walking on frostbitten toes. And avoid the use of heat lamps or fires to treat frostbite. The area is numb and can't feel the frostbitten tissue, sometimes causing significant burns. There is controversy as to whether frostbitten areas should be bandaged. Some advocate placing absorbent padding between frostbitten toes and fingers. Others suggest leaving it open to air. Prevention is hugely important, so you want to wear appropriate clothing that protects your extremities, such as well-insulated boots and a thick pair of well-fitting socks. Mittens for your hands, they provide better protection against very cold weather than gloves. A warm, weatherproof hat that covers your ears, it's very important to protect your head from the cold. And multiple thin layers of warm, loose-fitting clothing which act as insulation. Keep them dry and remove any wet clothing as soon as possible. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about more than 200 off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. I'm going to say that I can only imagine the pain of serious frostbite injury. Um, Having grown up hunting deer in Pennsylvania, uh, I was out in the cold an awful lot, especially in rifle season for deer. And I remember some very painful extremities, fingers and toes and things like that. But I, I doubt that I ever got much further than kind of the very beginnings of stage one description there. And there's a point where you say, enough of this crap. I'm going back to the Jeep to get warmed up. Um, the Just the memory of the ache 
And every one of you know what I'm talking about. That that ache that makes your hand scream for the warmth of a pocket. Yeah, I you really want to do everything you can to prevent going further than that because you start losing things like fingers and toes or worse. And then the pain you have to deal with is extreme. So take all of that advice to heart. Moving on, let's talk about expanding an existing solar power system with professional engineer and solar expert Sean Mills. Hey guys, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead, and I've got a question about adding higher wattage panels to an existing system. Uh, William says, I've got a roof mount 9.9 kilowatt hour system, I think it means kilowatts, uh, of 27 360 watt panels. I have room for another row on the roof. For what I paid for the 360 watt panels, I can get 450 to 500 watt panels. Uh, can you add differing watt panels or would it need its own system or inverter? So there's a couple different ways to answer this question. So the first way would be let's assume that you are actually on a grid-tied system and you're feeding power back to the grid. You would most likely need a separate inverter. Uh, those inverters would be able would need to be able to run in parallel. Uh, and then you would actually have to reach out to your local power company and whatever authorities having jurisdiction uh, existed in your area to get approval to add those systems. So second uh, scenario, let's say that you are on a off-grid system and this power is going into batteries or be going to be utilized locally by an inverter. So in that scenario, it really depends on the equipment that you have now. So if you have, listen, you didn't tell me how much extra you're going to put, but let's just say that you've got an inverter that can take 18,000 watts of solar input, and what you're adding would be less than the difference between, let's round up and say, the 10 kilowatts that you currently have. So let's say you're going to add, uh, you know, 5,000 watts. So you're going to add 10 500 watt panels to this system. As long as you had an open MPPT charge controller on that all-in-one inverter, you could just take those panels and wire them right into that, assuming that you weren't over voltage or over current. Now, what most people would do in this scenario is they would have their batteries tied into a bus bar, and then they'd have all of their equipment, whether it be charge controllers, charge verters, inverters, etc., they would actually be tied into that bus bar. And when I design systems for people, I typically tell them, put a bus bar in the system, and let's say if you have four connections you're going to put on there, get a six-slot bus bar so that you have two places to add onto in the future. And so in that scenario, what I would do is I would actually feed the extra panels into a separate charge controller and, and feed that into the bus bar and allow that bus bar uh, to basically interact with the battery, okay? So what happens is, is all your different power sources come together at the bus bar and then are aimed at the battery, and then the battery basically does what it's supposed to do, okay? So you're not going to put too much into the battery. The battery, well, let me rephrase that. If it's a lithium iron phosphate battery pack with a BMS, it's not going to allow itself to kind of get overloaded. But if it's not... If it's a flooded lead acid system, then you're going to want to make sure that you program your charge controllers so that they are uh, not overcharging the battery. And then one thing to think about is whatever your smallest cable is after your bus bar throughout your whole battery system, whatever that smallest cable is, 
that's your limiting factor for how many amps you can actually put into that battery pack, whether that battery pack is one battery or six or 12 or whatever. So if you've got big, heavy four-out cables running in between there, you can put a lot of amps through that system. Uh, but if you only have like two-gauge wire running through there, then you're limited. You, I think two-gauge you can get 75 amps through. And so you wouldn't want to put three different charge controllers that are all capable of 60 amps together into a bus bar and then run that through a wire that's only capable of 75 amps, right? Because three times 60 is more than 75. So it's something that you really want to think about from a standpoint of all the different components within your system. You need to find that weakest link and make sure that when you're adding to the system, you're not um, overloading that weakest link. So, um, you know, generally it's fine to add panels of different wattages to the system. You don't want to wire 500 watt panels into the same string that you have 360 watt panels, but you can run a separate set of wires into the same equipment given all of the uh, limitations that I just mentioned. So hope that answers your question. And if you've got any follow-up, send them in to me and I'll get them answered. All right, great stuff from Sean. Let's hear from one of the latest new members of the expert council, Eric Hammond. Eric will be able to answer your questions on mechanical things, not just you know auto mechanics and UTV, anything kind of mechanically related. That's his wheelhouse. Uh, I will be reaching out to Eric uh, and uh, Andy, uh, who is a CrossFit and fitness expert, and one other council member who right now in my brain, the name is escaping me, but all three of them should receive invitations this week for permanent council membership. Uh, if they choose to accept, we'll be able to announce all of that sometime next week. But Eric did a just a a badass job with this. And what I want you to pay attention to is instead of answering the question as asked, he answered the actual question. The question as asked was, "What brand do I seek for a UTV uh, that can tow things?" And the answer was, here's how you find a UTV to do what you want, regardless of brand, even though you probably should buy a good quality brand. So with that, Eric, take it away. Greetings. Eric Heyman here with Joy Homesteading with an expert counsel question from Ryan, who says, Hey, Jack, so I have a lawn tractor to pull my wood chipper, but it can't make it up hills without the back wheel spinning. I'm looking to get a new used ATV and wanted to see if you could recommend any particular model. I see you had a podcast with someone a few years ago about it. I've been looking at a year 2000 Polaris Sportsman 500. All right, Ryan, based on what you've been looking at, it seems like you're in the market for a large utility type of four-wheeler. Probably something that's four-wheel drive due to your limited traction that you've been experiencing. I want you to compile a list of features on a four-wheeler that's important to you. So you want to hook up your wood chipper to it so you know you're going to need a hitch. Well, make sure whatever model you're looking at has the ability to add a hitch to it. A lot of your hitches are vehicle-specific, but some of them are universal. So just be aware and make sure you can get something that's going to work for you. Most of those hitches are a square tubing, kind of like your pickup truck would have. And then you would just purchase a drawbar that would fit that square tubing, and that's what you would hook your wood chipper up to. So just to get your mind thinking, some of the features that I would want, I would want to make sure I'm looking for a four-wheeler that was a four-stroke, and I would want one that was an automatic with reverse. Make sure you make this list and then stick to your guns about it and only purchase something that's going to fit your needs. And then the second thing I really want to bring up 
is that you're looking at a 2,000-year model. So this is a 25-year-old vehicle that was designed to operate in extremely harsh environments. So how this vehicle was treated in the past and the maintenance that was done is critical to if this is going to be a good fit for you and a great purchase. So just some tips to go over when you go to look at these. Make sure when you go look at this, it hasn't been started for at least a day. You want that thing completely cold. Walk up to it. Stick your hands on the cylinder. Make sure you don't feel any warmth. You don't want somebody selling you something that's low on compression. A lot of these vehicles had poor fitting air filters or poor maintenance done, and dust is a huge killer of four-wheelers and ATVs. That dust gets in the combustion chamber. It sands the valves down. It sands the valve seats sands down the cylinder and the piston rings and you could end up with something that's hard to start either cold or hot so feel the cylinder make sure it's cold i want you to check the oil make sure it's good and clean if he's trying to sell you something that has dirty oil in it and he won't even put forth that effort then he's probably not done a lot of good maintenance in the past go ahead and have him fire that up for you make sure it idles good make sure it doesn't smoke uh, you're going to want to jance the vehicle up and down. You're going to want to make sure that everything is nice and tight in the steering, in the wheels, and then go ahead and ride that thing around. Make sure the brakes work. If it's a manual, make sure the clutch works. Make sure it shifts through all the gears and really try everything out and then get it good and hot. And then once it's hot, I want you to bring that thing back. I want you to shut it off and I want you to see how it restarts hot. If it restarts poorly hot, it could be an indication that maybe the valves are starting to wear on it and they're out of adjustment. Typically, adjusting those valves won't fix the concern. The concern is that the engine has been dusted. I want you to uh, kind of quiz the guy on how maintenance might have been done on it in the past. And then just look for some telltale signs. How's the plastic on the machine? Does it look like it's been abused? Is there a clean title and current registration on this thing? If he has a clean title and current registration, you can tell that he has taken the ownership of this vehicle more seriously than other people might. So that would be some of the tips I would have. I think you're on the right track looking at a name brand. So you were looking at a Polaris. Uh, you wanted some specific models that I might recommend. I'm going to go ahead and say off the bat, I would lean towards a Honda. Uh, they make specific models like a Fortrax, a Foreman are a couple of the ones that come to mind. They make one that's called a Rancher. Honda makes fantastic equipment. I really think that you would not do, you wouldn't do anything wrong by purchasing a Honda. Uh, some other models in that same genre of a large utility four wheeler would be like a Yamaha Grizzly or a Suzuki King Quad. But if there's been poor maintenance done, it doesn't matter what model you buy, it's going to cause you problems. So I would stick to a name brand model. I would make sure that good maintenance has been done to it and it doesn't look like it's been abused. And I think it's going to end up as a great tool for you to use around your property. I hope that answers your question, Ryan. For anybody else, if you want to send in any questions you have related to all things mechanical that you'd love to ask a mechanic, gas, diesel, electric, two-stroke, four-stroke, generator, store and fuel, whatever, as long as it's interesting and it should work, but it doesn't give me a crack at trying to answer that question. And if you want to keep up with me, 
Check out my YouTube channel at The Joy of Homesteading, where we help you paint a picture of what an abundant, successful life could be. Thanks. So I completely agree with all that. Um, I will just say that one thing I think a lot of people looking for UTVs should really consider also looking at for this purpose would be looking at things like very small, old, easy-to-maintain SUVs. They're getting harder and harder to find. Also, military Jeeps. Both of those, you know, they can go on road if necessary. They're light on ground, so, you know, they don't do any more damage than a UTV does, like compressing the ground and stuff like that. Um, They have less specialized parts. They will often cost less. I have not looked at used UTVs anytime recently, but every time I go to a store that will have, you know, like even, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot and Tractor Supply have some version thereof of these things sitting outside. I just look at that and go, I can literally buy a good use truck for the price of this thing new, right? I mean, like twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars on a UTV. And the one thing I will say about UTVs, they're wonderful when they work. I have never known anybody that relied on UTVs for like farm and ranch work that at any given time didn't have several of them and at least one of them was broken. They just, and I don't know if it's because I don't use them, so I don't know. I don't know if it's how they're used and abused or whatever, but I just know that it seems like, you know, this one has a shaft that's out or this one has a U-joint that broke. or it, it just seems like there's always a problem with one of them, and everybody that uses them for, like, homesteading, farm, ranch has at least two because two is one and one is none, and one is often the number that are operational. Larger operations have half a dozen, and we'll end up with, like, one or two of them down on a regular basis, and that will rotate through which one is down. Uh, it's not that cars, trucks, SUVs don't break. It just seems to me that they often break less often, and it gives you options that they don't. Uh, and again, like I'll tell the story. I haven't told it in a long time, so I'll go ahead and repeat it. I used to hunt at a ranch that uh, was mainly their their thing that people hunted was wild boars, basically feral hogs. And they had several Bronco 2s, which are really getting hard to find, but they are great little vehicles. And they had literally taken a torch and just cut the roof off them. So they were just basically convertibles, little Bronco 2 convertibles. And those things did so much work. And they were just like, the guy's like, I've had them forever. I'll never get rid of them. And so just that's another option to consider. With that, let's talk about the fact that Jack Spearco, Jack Spearco, of all people, agrees with a lot of the people. No, actually, no, wait, I almost missed one of our segments. What's wrong with me? First, we need to hear from Ben Falk on using wood ash and dealing with knotweed, and then we'll do my segment. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question, I'll start with the ash because that's that's easier. Um, We spread as much ash as we can in our gardens, and when we reach that limit, which is it is basically, for me, I figured it out, it's like three buckets, five-gallon buckets worth across our garden, that, that based on our soil needs, our particular pH mostly, and also our P and K, our uh, phosphorus and potassium, um, potassium, phosphorus in that order. So um, you can look it up. There's There's pretty good clear info out there on it. Um, you know, you, you don't want to raise, if you already have alkaline soils, like I 
probably wouldn't put any in your garden, although you should check on that because alkaline veggies aren't going to be happy to begin with. Uh, we have very acidic soils in the in the mountains here, so all the pH raising we can within reason is a good thing, um, but we don't want to get above seven or even above like six, 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 eight for a lot of brassicas. Um, and then our P and K is usually pretty low, so that helps. And then anything beyond that, I'll just spread in pasture, fields, uh, around trees. I mean, I'll, I'll never have enough ash. I mean, people buy dump trucks of it here to put on, you know, five, 10 acre fields. So yeah, so it depends where you are. Like a lot of things, it depends, but um, it's good stuff. And then about knotweed. So yeah, I mean, I think... I think the fears of like quote unquote invasive species are like so many things completely overrated and amplified and hysterical. Like a lot of the time, just like so much of, you know, emergencyism is in our society, right? I'm, I'm going to go off here on a, for a second because this is an audience that, that I think can, can understand this. Um, but yeah, we, we, we hype up any anything to war against, right, in this society. And uh, we love to have enemies. It's profitable for the few and uh, keeps us focused on those things versus other uh, challenges we actually can address. So, yeah, I think it's totally overrated, the, the, the fear of, of any, basically any species. And we're talking about living things. We're not talking about chemicals and, you know, nuclear waste and genetic pollution or electronic pollution or things that are, are, are truly bad like all of the time We're talking about plants here they make oxygen they make soil they make nectar for insects they make food for for everyone so um i i'm not i'm not you know that being said you know there's certain plants in the right plant in the right place as they say so um I wouldn't grow knotweed around my house. Um, I would probably try to, to outcompete it with other things. I would like occlude it and plant stuff that's going to shade it out into it. And with heavy management for a few years, you'll, you'll shade it out. Um, I don't know about it like damaging structures like underground. I mean, a lot of plants can do that if given enough time. I don't think Japanese knotweed would compared to some more, um, perennial, perennial woody plants, but, um, yeah, wouldn't be what I would choose to grow in zone one. So, yeah, good luck to you. Thanks. Before I go to my segment, I'm going to give you like a bonus segment today. The very basics of how you make something called fermented plant juice, which you might think is not related to Ben's rant in this segment, but it completely is. So very recently, I had Steven Reisner on, and somebody in the live chat was going on and on and on about if you use knotweed uh, for making fermented plant juice, you will spread knotweed until it eats everything on planet Earth, Right. And we tried to explain it, and I finally gave up. But this, I want to just tell you how you make fermented plant juice. And this person eventually understood it and still just kept going that it was going to make knotweed like eat the world. And you tell me how this would, would eat the world. This is the basics of how you make fermented plant juice. You collect the material and you cut it up into small parts. Okay, that's, that's kind of step one and two. And then you put it into a container with brown sugar that is equal to the weight of the plant material. So if you had 
100 grams of not weed, you would put 100 grams of brown sugar. Normally, we make fermented plant juice with multiple different plant species, though. But that's just how it would work. So we, we would do that, and then we would pack the material and the brown sugar into a container. And we would check the container at 24 hours and do some adjustments if necessary. Then we let the contents ferment undisturbed for three to five days. Then we're going to separate the liquids from the solids. So we have fermented this to crap. The solids can go into like a, uh, a compost bin or something like that where they will be destroyed. What is ever left of them completely broken down into nothing. And we separate the liquid from the solid. The liquid is the part we use for fertilizer. So this person was completely convinced because of how terrorized they are by what people say about knotweed. That the liquid from a ferment would pr propagate knotweed. This is unhinged. And I like this person, okay? I'm not going to call him out by name or anything. Right, because I don't think it's fair to do that to somebody who's a you know a great member of this community. But it's you know nobody's completely free of this programming. There is no world in which that's a problem, none. But they believe it, and and this is the thing. I have Japanese knotweed here. I do. I don't like it. It's in one place, and the place that it is just is magically shrinking every year over time. I've done nothing. Except basic land management processes. That's it. That's all I've done. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and we're going to hear my segment now. And like I said, it may shock you to under, you know, hear this, but I completely agree with an incredibly large number of people who are worried about global warming and CO2 that there is too much CO2 in the atmosphere. And I have a solution that the people saying it, if they really want a solution, will work. In fact, it'll get rid of all the CO2 that man has emitted for a hundred years, the last century, and it'll make everything better. Do you think I'm making it up? If you've listened for a while, you know I don't do that. Here we go. And again, this is available as a video. It may not be available until tomorrow as a video. It depends on how long. There's one little edit. When I got done, I forgot to shut off the recording, so there's like... A good 30 seconds of me diddling around and shit. So I need to take that off, and that means I have to, so it'll take some time. That, that's my point there. But uh, we'll have it out soon, and you can share this if you want to. All right, folks. Well, it's time for my segment for the Expert Council uh, show today for the Survival Podcast. And while I don't generally produce videos uh, for e Expert Council shows because they involve multiple parties who pre-record information and get it to me, uh, I did think this would be a good one to record on video. So if you want to share this segment with others, there's a YouTube video that you can find, or you're watching right now, and you can feel free to do so, so that you can send, you know, maybe share like a 10-minute segment versus an hour-and-a-half-long podcast. So anyway, what we're going to talk about today is where I completely agree, I, I don't know if they know I agree, I don't know if they know they agree, right, but where I completely agree with the global warming, AGW, climate change, complete eccentric fanatics. Like, the ones that are like, Literally still saying 10 years the way that it was said in 1989 by the Associated Press. I actually agree with them on a fundamental thing that should be a solution that everybody can agree to. And that is that there is too much carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There is. There's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. 
And I have a different reason for that conclusion than a lot of those people do. I personally think it belongs elsewhere. I don't think that it's poison. I think that without CO2, we would be, all be dead. That it's plant food. That it is that carbon itself is the basic building block of all life. But there is too much of it in the atmosphere. So if right now you're just... Like, somebody shared this with you, and you're like, I just need to get rid of this guy. He's saying words I don't like. Don't be triggered. Calm down a second and listen. Maybe you'll find that completely diametrically opposed apparent viewpoints are actually not if you give it a chance. So here's what I'm going to tell you. There is CO2, too much CO2 in the atmosphere because it belongs elsewhere. You want it out of the atmosphere, and I want it somewhere other than the atmosphere. So if we can come to a solution that does that for us, then we can both agree on the solution even though we have different motivations. That might mean that we actually have a real solution to a real problem. When you get something where people can look at it together and go, okay, that will work, let's do that. So let's, let's ask some simple questions, right? Instead of worrying about doomsday predictions Instead of listening to billionaires who keep buying coastal property and tell you that the coastlines are going to be underwater, instead of doing that, why don't we just say, we all agree we want less CO2 in the atmosphere. Where does CO2 go naturally on Earth as a sink, a carbon sink? What absorbs the CO2 on Earth right now? What are the top two things to do that? Number one is the oceans. Now here's the thing. There's, there's plenty of CO2 in the oceans. We don't really need to put more CO2 in the ocean. And the only way we end up with more CO2 in the ocean is to have CO2 in abundance beyond what the atmosphere wants to build it any more than it already is. So we can't do things to make more CO2 go into the ocean without hurting the health of the ocean. This we agree on. I'm sure that both sides, if you are on that side for a well-thought-out, logical, reasoned you know, viewpoint, and you're remotely informed, then you would probably agree we don't want to put more CO2 in the ocean. Okay. So that means we need to go to what is the second largest global sink, right, storage location for carbon. It is the soil. Nothing else even comes close. The soil. Not a, 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 a cavern that we falsely created to pump it into a thousand feet underground. That's, that's not a sink. That's our artificial storage. It's just a CO2 tank. That's all it is, right? So the only other place for it to really go that has historically across the span of billions of years of planet Earth is a soil. Yeah? So we agree then, and this has nothing to do with emissions, by the way. Cutting emissions does not pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. If you want to pull it out of the atmosphere, it has to go somewhere. You, you can't just, like, wave a magic wand and fart a certain color, and then it'll go away. It has CO2 is a molecule. It's bonded together. You either have to break it apart somehow, or you have to put it somewhere. So where do we put it? The soil. Okay. How do we get it in the soil? Plants. Now I know that most of you have at least had like 7th grade science and you understand photosynthesis and plants take CO2 and turn it into oxygen and other gases and create sugars and release it and that's how they grow and plants are good. I, I'm sure we agree on that too. We, we, we're going to go beyond that though. That is surface level. Plants take. How do you think the how do you think the soil gets the carbon? Plants put the carbon into the soil. So what we need is a lot more plants, and we don't really need more plants. What we need is less bare dirt, 
Because most of the bare dirt in the world, other than deserts, most of which we created, but most of the bare dirt in the world that's not in a desert is in arable farmland for part of the year. Okay? You understand how it's called plowing or tillage. And I'm about to show you exactly what tillage does to the atmosphere as far as CO2 concentration. I'm going to show you from NASA, which people that are on the extremist one side of this debate love NASA for, for, for data. I'm going to use NASA for data. I'm going to show you what happens when we till to the atmospheric CO2, and I'm going to show you what happens once we stop tilling and the crops start growing. And let's do that right now for you, the ones that are on the video anyway. This map is from a presentation by Ray Arlacheta, and I will put a link to the entire presentation in the show notes, and I'll add it to the video notes below for those that are just watching the video. And what this is showing you is concentration of CO2, and for those not looking at the image, I'll describe it, the brighter red the imaging, the more CO2 is in the atmosphere. And right now, the northern hemisphere is literally doused in CO2. The red is not even red. It's like maroon. It's magenta. It is extremely high uh, concentration of CO2. The date on that image, because this is a time-lapse video that I'm not going to run. I'm just going to jump ahead in it for you, and you can watch the whole thing if you want to, is 4-4, April 4th. It's about the highest concentration of CO2 in the Northern Hemisphere, and specifically in northern regions of Europe, Asia, and North America. What are we doing from March through April in that area? We are plowing. Whatever weed, whatever scrubby growth, whatever has happened up until that point has now been killed. It gets destroyed. Right? And then we're going to go into a point where these bacteria that are in the soil, right, are strategist bacterium, right? That means they reproduce rapidly, our strategy, as rapidly as possible and consume as fast as possible. So when we till the soil, the reason that actually makes plants grow is any organic matter that we put in that soil, we activate those bacteria, they go bloody ape shit, and they chew up and eat as fast as possible all the organic matter. Okay? This is factual, and it's why if you're going to put a road in somewhere, the highway uh, commissions, what they do, the first thing they do where the road's going to go, they plow it. And then they compact it because these bacteria destroy all the organic matter. And if you're putting a road base on something, you don't want organic matter because it breaks down over time and it creates settling. So you want as much compaction as you can. So the people who are professional engineers that want as much soil compaction as possible and as little life as possible under a road use the same tool a farmer does to create life. One that destroys life. Okay? Now I want to show you, I'm going to jump ahead to June 15. And like magic, again for those not on the video, all, almost all the red is gone. Now wait a minute. That's June. That's the peak of summer. That's when it's hot. That's when we get the air quality warnings. That's when everybody's out of school. That's when everybody's taking vacation. That's the, the height of airplanes dumping CO2 through jet fuel burning into the atmosphere. This sh You would think this would be when the highest amount of CO2 is in the atmosphere. It's one of the lowest time periods. And it's because plants take carbon and put it 
in the soil where it belongs. It's really simple to understand. Okay? It's really, really simple to understand. Now, a lot of this is being absorbed by trees and, you know, woodlots and things like that. So you might say, well, that negates everything Jack just said. No, wait a minute, because if you go back and watch this whole video, and you'll just have to trust me here, but you can do it for yourself. Again, I'll give you a link. If you look at the CO2 concentrations in February, when almost nothing's growing, they're through the floor. There's almost none. We actually create this huge plume of CO2 when we destroy the life in the soil so that we can plant a new crop. So here's a magic number. If you wanted to get rid of 100% of all CO2 that humans have put into the atmosphere in the last century, what do you think the organic matter of content of arable tilled farmland needs to go to to accomplish that? Let me give you a multiple choice quiz here. A, 10%. B, 5%. C, 3%. D, 2%. Got your answer in your head? The answer is D, 2%. If we can increase the organic... Now, think about what that means. That means that the organic matter content of farm soil throughout North America, Europe, and Asia is not even close to 2%. In most places, it's well under 1%. So all we have to do is increase the organic matter content to 2%, and all the CO2 we've emitted for 100 years goes into the soil where it belongs. We both get what we want. I get a much more productive agricultural system. I get a much healthier soil system. I get to restore the carbon cycle and restore the water cycle that we won't even get in today. But without this, you do not have a completed water cycle. It's why every spring, if you look at rivers, they're clouded with red clay dust. Because we plowed, and then everything washed off into the water system, and the water cycle requires that the rain infiltrate into the soil and drain through the earth, not across the earth, to be... So we have disrupted the carbon cycle and the water cycle because we disrupted the microbe cycle. Really simple to understand if you want to. How do we do this? Here's the thing. We don't need research. We don't need studies. We don't need lots of money. We can actually reduce how much mining and drilling we do for inputs. We can reduce chemicals, and we can increase profit for every farmer all at the same time. How do we do this? We cover the soil. We stop tilling. We plant cover crops. We terminate cover crops as we go into production crops. At the end of the production crop, we add a cover crop, and it costs less money to do this than to use chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers. If the inputs go down and the output remains even close to where it is, you do not starve the earth and you enrich the farmer who actually needs the money. We cut out all the people selling chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers that are killing us and killing our planet at the same time. Now, you might say to yourself, how does this redneck hippie duck farmer know this? And all these scientists in their white coats and their pocket protectors, how do they not know this? They do know this, but people do what they're paid to do. There is no massive cover crop seed lobby. That doesn't exist. There is no massive grants. There are no massive amounts and piles of money feeding this mindset. No. All of the money is behind things you can sell to farmers. 
If you teach farmers to cover crop, then all they really need to do is reserve some of their cover crop and let it mature in different rotational stands. They never even have to buy seed. And over a five-year period, a farmer can cut their inputs on the first year by about 50%, by another 50%, and by the fifth year, they almost, if they do it right, will have no input costs at all. Or they cut, let's say they cut their input costs to 10% of what they are today. Massive industries blow up, dry up, and go away, but we restore the ecology of the planet. And so what we need to be doing is building soil as rapidly as possible, and soil has organic matter. If it doesn't have organic matter, it's dirt. And to have organic matter remain consistent in the soil and continue to build soil, we need biology, which is bacteria and fungi. If we kill the bacteria and fungi, which we do with tillage and all the chemical processing, we cannot build soil. I, all we will do is, as we do build organic matter, burn it off in the next cycle. So it's not there. So, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. And here's the reality. If you out of hand reject that solution, you don't want a solution. You're looking for an excuse to enact some sort of political agenda. Because if the problem really is CO2, and again, I agree with you, I have a whole list of processes that because we put the CO2 in the atmosphere instead of the soil where it belongs, get disrupted. The carbon cycle and the water cycle and the, the ecological, uh, biological cycle of soil process, the top three. So what is the fastest way we can build soil by mimicking the way nature builds soil? So all we have to do again, just like we started out with, where does the CO2 go on Earth out of the atmosphere under natural cycles? We know it's ocean and then soil. It's one and two. And we know that, and there's not a single climate scientist that will disagree with that at all. Okay? So then we say, let's look to the Earth. What does the Earth do to build soil that works better than anything else the Earth does to build soil? Number one is marine ecosystems, mangroves. Okay, again, we're not going to be doing that much of that. They only grow in certain estuaries and certain primes, and we should do as much of it as we can, but it will not fix the problem. So what is the number two most rapid soil development system in nature when man gets out of the way and doesn't touch anything? Savannah ecosystems. Savannah ecosystems. And again, There is not a scientist that works for the IPCC that would disagree with that unless they don't know. And then they would say, if they're honest, I don't know. And when they looked at the data, they would say, okay, it's Savannah, he's right, Savannah eco ecosystems. Grow soil faster than anything else. How, what is a Savannah ecosystem? It is an ecosystem that is maintained with a predator-prey relationship. Lions and leopards eating wildebeest and water buffaloes. Okay? That's what is, and it has trees. It is glades of plains with clumps of trees and rows of trees. And the animals stay tightly gripped together. They eat the grass. Nature just happened to work it out to where they eat about a third of the grass before they've crapped and peed and trampled enough of the grass that they move to the next place. Their farts are not a problem. They are biological machines that create fertility in soil. They eat... The organic matter. They hold it in a moist environment at about 100 degrees Fahrenheit for about 24 hours and cycle it with microorganisms and deposit it on the ground and they love doing it. 
They stay close together because if you spread out in a savanna where there's lions and leopards, or in the United States when you were a buffalo and there were wolves, you get the chump. So they stay tight together, they move in mobs through the system, and they are gone for about a year before they return to a place they already were because there's so much good grass everywhere else it's not covered in their own poop. So they wait for the dung beetles to come and take it down, and the birds come in and scratch it in, and the worms come and eat it, and the soil builds, and the grass regrows, and its roots get deeper and deeper and deeper as it chases carbon pathways down into the system, and then they come back and they level a third of it again, trample it, and regrowth happens again. And you end up with these savanna systems having massive amounts of organic matter, And they, you know, they don't have drought problems because the little rain that they get in some places where it's pretty dry, the rain goes into the soil instead of across the soil. So if we want to build as much soil and as much organic matter as possible, we have to do the exact opposite of what the government says. Imagine that. The government's not on your side. Gee, who would have thought? So what do we need? We need animals in the ecosystem. So even if we're cropping, we're growing corn, beans, etc., standard crops, We should be rotating through our farms plots of cover. So this, this plot is in cover, this plot is in corn, this plot is in beans, and then that changes each growth cycle. I'm not going to get deep into it, but that's pretty easy to understand. You take the cover, and to terminate the cover, you run cattle or pigs or sheep through the cover. They will graze it, they will add fertility, they will trample it, And after they're done, you move them somewhere else where they can either graze on native grasses or other covers. And then right into that cover, you plant your next production crop. When that production crop comes to an end, we add a cover crop and we do it all over again. And the farms that are doing this, what did I say the magic number was for organic matter in the soil to get rid of all the CO2? They have organic matter in some of these farms of 6%. Now, the amount where this one farm in North Carolina is that I'm using that number from, if you went back to pre-settlement, when the pristine wilderness of the U.S. existed, it was all Native Americans, do you know what the organic matter content at the time was? About three. A farmer actively farming crops and livestock using no-till and cover and almost no inputs has doubled the pristine ecosystem's Organic matter content. Now, what would happen if we got to a 2% organic matter on the average farm in this country? We would cut the inputs by about 70% at least, and a lot of people still using it really wouldn't need it. They just wouldn't have the confidence yet to stop using it. And when I say inputs, I mean toxic herbicides, toxic pesticides, and chemically-based fertility, which is being mined, for instance, for phosphorus alone, creating massive ecological damage in just Florida. Because, oh, it's just rock phosphate. Well, how do you get it? You pour acid on rock, and you create these massive pits that are disgusting, filthy, toxic hellholes that will be there when your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are on their deathbed. They'll still be there. All of it can go away. All of it 100% of it can go away because we plant cover crops, graze ecosystems, mimic nature, and get off the chemical dependency. And if you want global warming to go away, and you think global warming will go away if we reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere, you get that. And people like me who don't agree with you at all, we get everything we want to. 
Now, here's my question for you at the end, if you made it this long. If you could stand to listen to this much fact that some of it flies in the face of what you've been led to believe, if you made it this far. If we can agree on the solution, if the solution makes the world a better place, if the solution costs less, not more money, if the solution results in healthier food for everybody, including people that live on vegetation, including the vegetarian and the vegan, will get better quality food this way. And we can't go forward with that solution. What's your solution? And the reality is, you don't have one. You don't have one. Because the problems I gave you today are real. The soil is denuded from organic matter. We are eating poisons and toxins when we use conventional and organic farmed vegetation. Animals are the solution. The fastest way to build soil is... A savanna, savanna mimic ecosystem. In agriculture, we call that civopasture. If you don't know what that is, you should look it up. And that's it. So do you want a solution? Or do you have an agenda, like social justice, that you want to push? You want to push a social justice agenda? Go for it. Go for it. I will not stand in your way. But let's not take science, biology, and ecology and leverage it backwards to try to accomplish a political goal. Let's put carbon where it belongs, in the soil. Let's grow better food. Let's build soil. And let's get off the chemical dependency. That's just my suggestion. Hope you enjoyed my segment today. If you want to catch the entire podcast on a variety of things, there's a link in the video notes. Everybody else listening to the audio, well, you're already doing that. Well, all right, folks, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our show. Remember, Fridays are now Friday flashbacks, so you will have an outstanding interview blast from the past tomorrow. In fact, let me real quick look and see what we have on the docket for tomorrow. Well, apparently back November the 30th, 2010, episode 560, we did an episode called Shipping Container Construction, the good, the bad, and the ugly with a, a, a listener to the show and community member who didn't want to give away his last name, so we simply called him Mike. And we're going to talk tomorrow with you about storage containers as a shelter, as a storage structure, the misconceptions, the average cost per unit, which will obviously have to be adjusted, but actually containers might cost less today than they did back then for a variety of reasons. Uh, burials, partial burials, roofing over, all the problems that come with that, where they're the weakest, uh, how you can do this and actually make it work. And the most important question is somebody that actually had done it, would you do it again? So again, this was from 2010, but I think it's just as relevant as t today as it ever was. That'll be tomorrow's episode, so don't miss it and make sure you tune in. With that, if you enjoyed my segment and you, you agree with me that cover cropping and soil biology are a better solution than ranting and raving and taxing the air that we breathe, then one of the first steps is establishing the biology, and the best way that you can do that is with compost. I highly encourage you, if you have not signed up for it yet, to consider signing up for the, the, the course that I've built on bioreactor composting. You can find it at Home Food 
permaculturesystems.com. Again, I have completed the principle-based permaculture design course. That will be free for everyone. That should probably be released next week if you want to take that course. If you've already had the bioreactor course, I encourage you to take it. If you haven't, I encourage you to take it because it's free. And then we will begin doing our course. I I've, have most of the syllabus done now. I can start actually putting together the decks and, and, and doing the recording for the cover crop course. And my hope with this site and building this new educational platform for you guys is that we're going to build the core where everybody knows how to do this and understands it at a deep intellectual level. So when you're challenged on it, you can actually answer people who seriously want a solution, but they're not sure that they really understand how this would work. And that's why our first three courses are the bioreactor composting, uh, and then again, the free permaculture principles uh, class, which is going to be a foundational class for, for the longer view of this. But then to move into cover cropping and then biochar. With those three things in your corner, and then we're going to add some aquaculture. That'll be probably the fourth paid course. It won't be as big as the original plan I had for it. It's going to be a multi-stage course for aquaculture. But I'm going to start out with the aquaculture course where anybody can do it. Very inexpensively, without doing like a lot of pumps, a lot of the stuff you see me doing, really, really simple, where we can take the aquaculture components and use them to build soil. Because I think that's the good first step, and we can produce a lot of crops and some fish and some things along the way, and again, do it very inexpensively. So that is what's going on at Home Food Systems. But the course to take first really is the bioreactor compost, because it takes a year to make the highest quality compost possible, so it's a lot like a tree. The best time to have built a bioreactor was last year. The next best time is today. With that, I'll catch you guys next week, and tomorrow you'll have your Friday flashback. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.